Everybody dies, don't they? The house with the brick kiln. The hamlet of Trevor Major lies very lonely and sequestered in a hollow below the north side of the South Downs that stretch westward from Lewis and run parallel with the coast. It is a hamlet of some three or four dozen inconsiderable houses and cottages, much girt about with trees but the big Norman church and the manor house, which stands a little outside the village, are evidence of a more conspicuous past. This latter, except for a tenancy of rather less than three weeks now, four years ago, has stood unoccupied since the summer of 1896, and though it could be taken at a rent almost comically small, it is highly improbable that either of its last tenants, even if times were very bad, would think of passing a night in it again. For myself, I was one of those tenants. I would far prefer living in a workhouse to inhabiting those low-pitched, oak-panelled rooms, and would sooner look from my garret windows onto the squalor and grime of Whitechapel than from the diamond-shaped and leaded panes of the manor of Trevor Major onto the boscage of its cool thickets and the glimmering of its clear chalk stream, where the quick trout glance among the waving water-weeds and over the chalk and gravel of its sliding rapids. It was the news of these trout that led Jack Singleton and myself to take the house for a month between mid-May and mid-June. But, as I have mentioned, a short three weeks was all the time we passed there, and we had more than a week of our tenancy yet unexpired when we left the place, though, on the very last afternoon, we enjoyed the finest dry fly fishing that has ever fallen to my lot. Singleton had originally seen the advertisement of the house in a Sussex paper, with the statement that there was good dry fly fishing belonging to it, but it was with but faint hopes of the reality of the dry fly fishing that we went to look at the place, since we had before this so often inspected depopulated ditches which were offered to the unwary under high-sounding titles. Yet, after a half-hour's stroll by the stream, we went straight back to the agent, and before nightfall had taken it for a month with option of renewal. We arrived accordingly from town at about five o'clock on a cloudless afternoon in May, and through the mists of horror that now stand between me and the remembrance of what occurred later, I cannot forget the exquisite loveliness of the impression then conveyed. The garden, it is true, appeared to have been for years untended, Weeds half-choked the gravel paths, and the flower-beds were a congestion of mingled wild and cultivated vegetations. It was set in a wall of mellowed brick, in which snapdragon and stone-crop had found an anchorage to their liking, and beyond that there stood sentinel a ring of ancient pines in which the breeze made music as of a distant sea. Outside that the ground sloped slightly downwards in a bank covered with a jungle of wild rose, to the stream that ran round three sides of the garden, and then followed a meandering course through the two big fields which lay towards the village. Over all this we had fishing rights. Above, the same rights extended for another quarter of a mile to the arched bridge over which there crossed the road which led to the house. In this field above the house, on the fourth side, where the ground had been embanked to carry the road, stood a brick kiln in a ruinous state, a shallow pit, long overgrown with tall grasses and wild field flowers, showed where the clay had been digged. 
The house itself was long and narrow. Entering, you passed direct into a square-panelled hall, on the left of which was the dining room, which communicated with the passage leading to the kitchen and offices. On the right of the hall were two excellent sitting-rooms looking out, the one onto the gravel in front of the house, the other onto the garden. From the first of these you could see, through the gap in the pines by which the road approached the house, the brick kiln of which I have already spoken. An oak staircase went up from the hall, and round it ran a gallery, onto which the three principal bedrooms opened. These were commensurate with the dining-room and the two sitting-rooms below. From this gallery there led a long narrow passage shut off from the rest of the house by a red baize door which led to a couple more guest-rooms and the servants' quarters. Jack Singleton and I shared the same flat in town, and we had sat down in the morning, Franklin and his wife, two old and valued servants, to get things ready at Trevor Major and procure help from the village to look after the house. And Mrs. Franklin, with her stout, comfortable face, all wreathed in smiles, opened the door to us. She had had some previous experience of the comfortable quarters which go with fishing, and had come down prepared for the worst, but found it all of the best. The kitchen boiler was not furred, hot and cold water was laid on in the most convenient fashion, and could be obtained from taps that neither stuck nor leaked. Her husband, it appeared, had gone into the village to buy a few necessaries, and she brought up tea for us, and then went upstairs to the two rooms over the dining-room and bigger sitting-room, which we had chosen for our bedrooms to unpack. The doors of these were exactly opposite one another to right and left of the gallery, and Jack, who chose the bedroom above the sitting-room, had thus a smaller room above the second sitting-room, unoccupied, next his, and opening out from it. We had a couple of hours fishing before dinner, each of us catching three or four brace of trout, and came back in the dusk to the house. Franklin had returned from the village from his errand, reported that he had got a woman to come in to do the housework in the mornings, and mentioned that our arrival had seemed to arouse a good deal of interest. The reason for this was obscure. He could only tell us that he was questioned a dozen times as to whether we really intended to live in the house, and his assurance that we did produced silence and a shaking of heads. But the country folk of Sussex are notable for their silence and chronic attitude of disapproval, and we put this down to local idiosyncrasy. The evening was exquisitely warm, and after dinner we pulled out a couple of basket chairs onto the gravel by the front door, and sat for an hour or so, while the night deepened in throbs of gathering darkness. The moon was not risen, and the ring of pines cut off much of the pale starlight, so that when we went in, allured by the shining of the lamp in the sitting-room, it was curiously dark for a clear night in May, and at that moment of stepping from the darkness into the cheerfulness of the lighted house, I had a sudden sensation, to which, during the next fortnight, I became almost accustomed, of there being something unseen and unheard and dreadful near me. In spite of the warmth, I felt myself shiver, and concluded instantly that I had sat out of doors long enough, and without mentioning it to Jack, followed him into the smaller sitting-room, in which we had scarcely yet set foot. It, like the hall, was oak-panelled, 
and in the panels hung some half a dozen of watercolour sketches, which we examined idly at first, and then with a growing interest, for they were executed with extraordinary finish and delicacy, and each represented some aspect of the house or garden. Here you looked up the gap in the fir trees into a crimson sunset. Here the garden, trim and carefully tended, dozed beneath some languid summer noon. Here an angry wreath of storm-cloud brooded over the meadow where the trout-stream ran grey and leaden below a threatening sky, while another, the most careful and arresting of all, was a study of the brick kiln. In this, alone of them all, was there a human figure. A man, dressed in grey, peered into the open door, from which issued a fierce red glow. The figure was painted with miniature-like elaboration. The face was in profile and represented a youngish man, clean-shaven, with a long aquiline nose and singularly square chin. The sketch was long and narrow in shape, and the chimney of the kiln appeared against a dark sky. From it there issued a thin stream of grey smoke. Jack looked at this with attention. What a horrible picture, he said, and how beautifully painted. I feel as if it meant something, as if it was a representation of something that happened, not a mere sketch. By Jove! He broke off suddenly and went in turn to each of the other pictures. That's a queer thing, he said. See if you notice what I mean. With the brick kiln rather vividly impressed on my mind, it was not difficult to see what he had noticed. In each of the pictures appeared the brick kiln, chimney and all, now seen faintly between trees, now in full view, and in each the chimney was smoking. And the odd part is, that from the garden side you can't really see the kiln at all, observed Jack. It's hidden by the house, and yet the artist, um, F.A., as I see by his signature, puts it in just the same. What do you make of that? I asked. Nothing. Well, I suppose he had a fancy for brick kilns. Let's have a game of piquet. A fortnight of our three weeks passed without incident, except that again and again the curious feeling of something dreadful, being close at hand, was present in my mind. In a way, as I said, I got used to it. But on the other hand, the feeling itself seemed to gain in poignancy. Once, just at the end of the fortnight, I mentioned it to Jack. Odd you should speak of it, he said, because I felt the same. When do you feel it? Do you feel it now, for instance? We were again sitting out after dinner, and as he spoke, I felt it with far greater intensity than ever before. And at the same moment the house door, which had been closed, though probably not latched, swung gently open, letting out a shaft of light from the hall, and as gently swung to again, as if something had stealthily entered. Yes, I said, I felt it then. I only feel it in the evening. It was rather bad that time. Jack was silent a moment. Funny thing, the door opening and shutting like that, he said. Let's go indoors. We got up, and I remember seeing at that moment that the windows of my bedroom were lit. Mrs. Franklin probably was making things ready for the night. Simultaneously, as we crossed the gravel, there came from just inside the house the sound of a hurried footstep on the stairs, and entering we found Mrs. Franklin in the hall, looking rather white and startled. Anything wrong? I asked. 
She took two or three quick breaths before she answered. No, sir, she said, at least nothing that I can give an account of. I was tidying up in your room, and I thought you came in, but there was nobody, and it gave me a turn. I left my candle there. I must go up for it. I waited in the hall a moment while she again ascended the stairs and passed along the gallery to my room. At the door, which I could see was open, she paused, not entering. What is the matter? I asked from below. I left a candle light, she said, and, and it's gone out. Jack laughed. And you left a window and door open, said he. Yes, sir, but not a breath of wind is stirring, said Mrs. Franklin, rather faintly. This was true, and yet a few moments ago the heavy hall door had swung open and back again. Jack ran upstairs. We'll brave the dark together, Mrs. Franklin, he said. He went into my room and I heard the sound of a match struck. Then through the open door came the light of the rekindled candle, and simultaneously I heard a bell ring in the servants' quarters. In a moment came steps and Franklin appeared. What bell was that? I asked. Mr. Jack's bedroom, sir, he said. I felt there was a marked atmosphere of nerves about, for which there was really no adequate cause. All that had happened of a disturbing nature was that Mrs. Franklin had thought I had come into my bedroom and had been startled by finding I had not. She had then left a candle in a draught and it had been blown out. As for a bell ringing, that, even if it had happened, was a very innocuous proceeding. Mouse on a wire, I said. Uh, Mr. Jack's in my room this moment, lighting Mrs. Franklin's candle for her. Jack came down at this juncture, and we went into the sitting room. But Franklin apparently was not satisfied, for we heard him in the room above us, which was Jack's bedroom, moving about with his slow and rather ponderous tread. Then his steps seemed to pass into the bedroom adjoining, and we heard no more. I remember feeling hugely sleepy that night, and went to bed earlier than usual to pass rather a broken night with stretches of dreamless sleep, interspersed with startled awakenings, in which I passed very suddenly into complete consciousness. Sometimes the house was absolutely still, and the only sound to be heard was the sighing of the night breeze outside in the pines. But sometimes the place seemed full of muffled movements, and once I could have sworn that the handle of my door turned. That required verification, and I lit my candle, but found that my ears must have played me false. Yet even as I stood there, I thought I heard steps just outside, and with a considerable qualm, I must confess, I opened the door and looked out. But the gallery was quite empty, and the house quite still. Then from Jack's room opposite I heard a sound that was somehow comforting, the snorts of the snorer and I went back to bed and slept again. And when next I woke, morning was already breaking in red lines on the horizon, and the sense of trouble that had been with me ever since last evening had gone. Heavy rain set in after lunch next day, and as I had arrears of letter-writing to do, and the water was soon both muddy and rising, I came home alone about five, leaving Jack still sanguine by the stream, and worked for a couple of hours sitting at a writing-table in the room overlooking the gravel at the front of the house, where hung the watercolours. By seven I had finished, and just as I got up to light candles since it was already dusk, I saw, as I thought, Jack's figure emerge from the bushes that bordered the path to the stream, on the space in front of the house. Then 
instantaneously and with a sudden queer sinking of the heart quite unaccountable. I saw that it was not Jack at all, but a stranger. He was only some six yards from the window, and after pausing there a moment, he came close up to the window, so that his face nearly touched the glass, looking intently at me. In the light from the freshly kindled candles, I could distinguish his features with great clearness, but though, as far as I knew, I had never seen him before, there was something familiar about both his face and figure. He appeared to smile at me, but the smile was one of inscrutable evil and malevolence, and immediately he walked on, straight towards the house door opposite him, and out of sight of the sitting-room window. Now, little though I liked the look of the man, he was, as I have said, familiar to my eye, and I went out into the hall, since he was clearly coming to the front door, to open it to him and learn his business. So, without waiting for him to ring, I opened it, feeling sure I should find him on the step. Instead, I looked out into the empty gravel sweep, the heavy falling rain, the thick dust, and even as I looked, I felt something that I could not see push by me through the half-open door and pass into the house. Then the stairs creaked, and a moment after, a bell rang. Franklin is the quickest man to answer a bell I've ever seen, and next instant he passed me going upstairs. He tapped at Jack's door, entered, and then came down again. Mr. Jack's still out, sir? he asked. Yes, his bell ringing again? Yes, sir, said Franklin, quite imperturbably. I went back into the sitting-room, and soon Franklin brought a lamp. He put it on the table above, which hung the careful and curious picture of the brick kiln. And then, with a sudden horror, I saw why the stranger on the gravel outside had been so familiar to me. In all respects he resembled the figure that peered into the kiln. It was more than a resemblance. It was an identity. And what had happened to this man who had inscrutably and evilly smiled at me, and what had pushed in through the half-closed door? At that moment I saw the face of fear. My mouth went dry, and I heard my heart leaping and cracking in my throat. That face was only turned on me for a moment and then away again, but I knew it to be the genuine thing, not apprehension, not foreboding, not a feeling of being startled, but fear, cold fear. And then, though nothing had occurred to assuage the fear, it passed, and a certain sort of reason usurped for, so I must say, its place. I had certainly seen somebody on the gravel outside the house, I had supposed he was going to the front door. I had opened it and found that he had not come to the front door, or, and once again the terror resurged, had the invisible pushing thing been that which I had seen outside? And if so, what was it? And how came it that the face and figure of the man I had seen were the same as those which were so scrupulously painted in the picture? of the brick kiln. I set myself to argue down the fear for which there was no more foundation than this, this, and the repetition of the ringing bell, and my belief is that I did so, 
I told myself till I believed it that a man, a human man, had been walking across the gravel outside and that he had not come to the front door but had gone, as he might easily have done, up the drive into the high road. I told myself that it was mere fancy that was the cause of the belief that something had pushed in by me. And as for the ringing of the bell, I said to myself, as was true, that this had happened before. And I must ask the reader to believe also that I argued these things away and looked no longer on the face of fear itself. I was not comfortable, but I fell short of being terrified. I sat down again by the window looking onto the gravel in front of the house, and finding another letter that asked, though it did not demand an answer, proceeded to occupy myself with it. Straight in front led the drive through the gap in the pines, and passed through the field where lay the brick kiln. In a pause of page-turning, I looked up and saw something unusual about it. At the same moment, an unusual smell came to my nostril. What I saw was the smoke coming out of the chimney of the kiln. What I smelt was the odour of roasting meat. The wind, such as there was, set from the kiln to the house but as far as I knew, the smell of roast meat probably came from the kitchen where dinner, so I supposed, was cooking. I had to tell myself this. I wanted reassurance, lest the face of fear should look whitely on me again. Then there came a crisp step on the gravel, a rattle at the front door, and Jack came in. Good sport, he said, you gave up too soon. And he went straight to the table above which hung the picture of the man at the brick kiln and looked at it. Then there was silence, and eventually I spoke, for I wanted to know one thing. Seen anybody? I asked. Yes. Why do you ask? Uh, because I have also. The man in that picture. Jack came and sat down near me. It's a ghost, you know, he said. He came down to the river about dusk and stood near me for an hour. At first I thought he was real, and I warned him that he had better stand further off if he didn't want to be hooked. And then it struck me he wasn't real, and I cast, well, <laughs> right through him. And about seven he walked up towards the house. Were you frightened? No, it was so tremendously interesting. So you saw him too. Whereabouts? Uh, just outside. I, I think he's in the house now. Jack looked round. Did you see him come in? he asked. No, but I felt him. There's another queer thing, too. The chimney of the brick kiln is smoking. Jack looked out of the window. It was nearly dark, but the wreathing smoke could just be seen. So it is, he said. Fat, greasy smoke. I think I'll go up and see what's on. Come to? I think not, I said. Are you frightened? It isn't worthwhile. Besides, it is so tremendously interesting. Jack came back from his little expedition still interested. He had found nothing stirring at the kiln, but though it was then nearly dark, the interior was faintly luminous, and against the black of the sky he could see a wisp of thick white smoke floating northwards. But for the rest of the evening we neither heard nor saw anything of abnormal import, and the next day ran a course of undisturbed hours. Then, suddenly, a hellish activity was manifested. That night, while I was undressing for bed, I heard a bell ring furiously, 
and I thought I heard a shout also. I guessed where the ring came from, since Franklin and his wife had long ago gone to bed, and went straight to Jack's room. But as I tapped at the door, I heard his voice from inside calling loud to me. Take care, it said. He's close to the door. A sudden qualm of black fear took hold of me, but mastering it as best I could, I opened the door to enter, and once again something pushed softly by me, though I saw nothing. Jack was standing by his bed half undressed. I saw him wipe his forehead with the back of his hand. Uh, He's been here again, he said. I was standing just here a minute ago, when I found him close by me. He came out of the inner room, I think. Did you see what he had in his hand? I saw nothing. It was a knife, a great long carving knife. Do you mind me sleeping on the sofa in your room tonight? I got an awful turn then. There was another thing, too. All round the edge of his clothes, at his collar, and at his wrists, there were little flames playing, little white-licking flames. But next day, again, we neither heard nor saw anything, nor that night did the sense of that dreadful presence in the house come to us. And then came the last day. We had been out till it was dark, and, as I said, had a wonderful day among the fish. On reaching home, we sat together in the sitting room, when suddenly from overhead came a tread of feet, a violent pealing of the bell, and the moment after, yell after yell, as of someone in mortal agony. The thought occurred to both of us that this might be Mrs. Franklin in terror of some fearful sight, and together we rushed up and sprang into Jack's bedroom. The doorway into the room beyond was open, and just inside it we saw the man bending over some dark, huddled object. Though the room was dark, we could see him perfectly, for a light, stale and impure seemed to come from him. He had again a long knife in his hand, and as we entered he was wiping it on the mass that lay at his feet. Then he took it up, and we saw what it was, a woman with head nearly severed. But it was not Mrs. Franklin. And then the whole thing vanished, and we were standing looking into a dark and empty room. We went downstairs without a word, and it was not until we were both in the sitting-room below that Jack spoke. And he takes her to the brick-kiln, he said rather unsteadily. I say, have you had enough of this house? I have. There is hell in it. About a week later, Jack put into my hand a guidebook to Sussex, open at the description of Trevor Major, and I read, Just outside the village stands the picturesque manor house, once home of the artist and notorious murderer Francis Adam. It was here he killed his wife in a fit, it is believed, of groundless jealousy, cutting her throat and disposing of her remains by burning them in a brick kiln. Certain charred fragments found six months afterwards led to his arrest and execution. So, I prefer to leave the house with the brick kiln and the pictures signed F.A. to others. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you?
Hi, well, so that was um, E.F. Benson's The House of the Brick Kiln. And I wanted to thank uh, Jay Parrish for this because he has signed up as a Patreon and as a YouTube member as well as, as in fact, uh, at the higher level, which um, kind of gives him the privilege of suggesting a story. And what he did was he said, uh, you choose a story. So there we are. So I chose this one. I, um, what do I think about uh, E.F. Benson's stories? I think they're good. Some of them are better than others. I like this one. I think at his best, he uh, is approaches M.R. James, you know. And sometimes some of his stories, I think, are actually, well, how dare I say this, better than some of M.R. James's. But the thing that he doesn't, the thing that he does is he explains the ghosts. And I've come to believe that the less we, the less we know about the spirit and the ghost, the scarier they are. So a lot of M.R. James's stuff is... Um, totally inexplicable, not just not explained, but what on earth is it about? Mezzotin, what is that thing? Okay, it's about stealing a child, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And in a whistle, um, the flapping linen on the bed, what is that about, you know? Um, and also, that reminds me a lot of the weirdness that I find in Robert Aikman, whereby um, his stories are just odd, and they're, they're very... Um, rooted in the everyday, but the, the oddness of them is jarring, really. And I suppose, in a sense, that reminds me of people like Kafka and Bruno Schultz. We did the, the uh, sanitarium under the sign of the hourglass, which, again, is pretty weird. So, uh, and kind of unsettling because of that. Anyway, I should probably say something about E.F. Benson. So E.F. Benson, Edward, Edward Frederick Benson, better known as E.F., was an English novelist, biographer, memoirist, memoirist rather, and short story writer, born on July 24th, 1867 in Berkshire, England, to a family of distinguished academics and writers. He was educated at Marlborough College and King's College, Cambridge. He published his first book, which, which was a collection of poems in 1893. He's best known for his humorous and satirical novels and stories, many of which are set in the fictional fictional town of Tilling, modelled after the Sussex coastal town of Rye, where he lived for many years. His most famous works are the six Map and Lucia novels, which follow the social climbing and petty rivalries of two women, Lucia and Miss Map, in a small town in the early 20th century. The novels were hugely popular in their time and have been adapted for television and radio several times. I recently did a PG Woodhouse uh, somebody tried to correct my pronunciation and say, no, 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 no. It's written Wodehouse, and they thought it should be pronounced Wodehouse, but it shouldn't. It's like the old uh, Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll controversy. Um, Jekyll is how it was pronounced. I know it's mainly, it looks like it should be Jekyll, and it's been pronounced Jekyll because of that. But it, And some people in my Jekyll um, will correct me, but they're wrong, and they're wrong about Wodehouse as well. I'm very strident. So, yeah, no, so P.G. Wodehouse and... Um, P.G. Woodhouse has remained, he's remained possibly as popular, uh, Evelyn War as well, as popular, perhaps E.F.'s um, Map and Lucia are not as popular as they were. So he, he never married, he was gay, but he, he didn't come out as being gay during his lifetime. He died on February 29th, 1940 in London of throat cancer at the age of 72. Uh, he was, um, so we say his father, Edward White Benson, was the Archbishop of Canterbury, from the, the top dog in the uh, English church from 1883 to 1896. His mother, Mary Benson, was a writer and social activist, and he was the fifth of their six children. He had an elder brother, 
uh, Arthur Christopher Benson, also a writer, and we've done, uh, and he was master of Ma- Martin. I was going to say Magdalene. Yeah, I think it is Magdalene College, Cambridge, rather than Magdalene College, Cambridge. That I, I am maybe wrong on that one. So when I'm wrong, I say I'm wrong on that. It's Magdalene Oxford, is it Magdalene Cambridge? I don't know. His younger brother Hugh was a scientist and worked on the development of the atomic bomb during World War Two. He was killed actually. His sister Margaret was a painter and illustrator. E.F. was particularly close to his mother, who encouraged his literary pursuits. And after his father's death, he and his siblings moved with their mother to London, where they become part became part of the city's literary and artistic scene. They had a privileged background, and so he was able to write about privileged. All all of his people are always taking. They don't work. Uh, they take houses. I mean, between the lights, they go shooting and they go to country houses. And I suppose uh, that's the thing. We did A.F. Benson, his brother A.C. Benson's Basil Netherby, uh, which is probably the only story of A.C.'s that approaches the quality of his brothers. Um, he had His other brother was a Catholic priest, R.H. Benson. And his stories are too... Too um, contrived, too. I don't mean that, that, that they are too forced with um, spiritual messages, particularly Roman Catholic spiritual messages, which are fine, but I don't like kind of being preached at in stories, either politically or religiously. So, and I think it just takes away from the story. Probably that's why I don't like it. If it was done successfully, potentially, I wouldn't mind, but uh, it takes away from the story. Stories are written to amuse people aren't they so i think what we can say about this story is so we have kind of an abandoned house it's a bit gothic it's a it's an english country house the weather's lovely uh so that's not so gothic it's in a remote 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 area where the locals look askance at them or askance at them again oh here we have been tripping over our pronunciation tonight so um there we are so I kind of was kind of exploring what is this story about? Because it just appears to be a fairly standard ghost story. Um, but it has that weirdness, I think, until the end, you know. And then you think, well, it's all explained away. So basically, it's the ghost of the painter who murdered his wife, Bob's your uncle, you know, there's not, what's, what's mysterious about that? And what I've said before is that once we pin things down and we understand them, they're not frightening anymore. It's the, it's the uncertainty that is frightening. Where is the monster? Where is the ghost? What is it? What does it intend uh, for the character there? And while that is up in the air and we don't know, we can't predict it, but once we've got it taped down, it's like, oh, it's a vampire. Oh, it's a, we know what to do about those. Oh, it's a, it's a ghost of a guy who murdered his wife. Absolutely no problem at all. I suppose the only thing is to say that, you know, if you were in that house and all that was going on, uh, you would probably be a little bit scared. Um, I, I, a couple of things about it that, that seem important that I don't get a resolution from the story. So the two aspects that strike me, oh, well, we could go into the fishing. The fishing is so good. If we were getting deeply symbolic we might say that of course the, the, the fish that swims in the water the unconscious is the soul and of course the christian symbol is a fish um early christian symbol so they're fishing for souls whose souls are they fishing for and the fishing is better than that is normal 
And of course, on on that particular day, he leaves and leaves his friend who has tremendous day fishing for soles or uh, trout, as it turns out. Um, so is it that? Is it something? And if we follow that, the other thing is um, you can get, you know, obviously I'm a big uh, follower of Carl Jung and, you know, he would see the, the fish as a symbol of the self or the soul in the unconscious. The brick kiln is also reminiscent of a, an alchemical process of transformation, isn't it, uh, from a Jungian point of view? So the alembic where the, 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 the soul is transformed from the little individual to the big self you know, that is part of the divine, I guess. Um, so there is a process of, you know, and not and if it was making bricks, well, the bricks build your house and a house is also symbolic of the life one makes. And, you know, we construct our lives, don't we? We build, we, we go out, we get a job, we get a career, we study, we get a partner, um, we may have children, uh, we may have interests and we create the, with the bricks, we create our lives. So we can see that the brick kiln is how... Um, we build our house, we, and our house is our life, the life we create. Um, so it's a it's a, a creation of our every day of our, of our endeavors, I suppose. Um, but then the painter murders his wife and cooks her. Not he doesn't just he cooks her. There's a smell of roast meat, which is quite macabre, really. Um, again, somebody cor- corrected my pronunciation of the word macabre or macabre because there's an r in it in there in there you know at the end so macabre macabre anyway i'm narky tonight aren't i so the cooking is a transformation the female is typically for a man the the anima the soul but of course because i don't know if that changes for the fact he was that um ed uh, ed, ed uh, ef i'll call him because i can't remember his name was uh, was gay does that change the anima mm, i don't know um there's something about transformation the murderer is the shadow the shadow of the parts of ourselves that we don't want to acknowledge so um our man goes into the house fishing for his soul um, and he's with his friend who he lives with, and it's not spoken, but was there a gay relationship between them? Was it was it an unrequited relationship? Was it because it was illegal and he, he couldn't speak about it? So did he have kind of unrequited passions for this guy that he went with? And so uh, they go to this, this place uh, where things are transformed and... I'm not, I'm struggling with this, aren't I? Potentially, I think there's something in it. And the other thing is that the murderer is a painter called AF. What is that about? AF. I can think what, what we, AF stands for now, but what does it mean to them? So I think, actually, I'm doing this uh, ad lib, but I think this would be a really interesting case study to look at, see if we can kind of divine anything. Because remember that an artist produces things from the unconscious, so they inevitably reflect the preoccupations of the unconscious of that person. That's why he writes this story uh, rather than, you know, any other kind of story. Um, and we all do that. So our our dreams and our 
artistic products, whether they be paintings or pottery or knitting or cooking, in a sense they, they issue from somewhere deeper inside ourselves and they therefore reflect themes and things that are important to us or necessary to us. Um, and so I, th- I think there's a lot in this story when you go into it. Um, and I, I'm probably not going to do it justice here, but it's worth tossing these things in the air. And, you know, you may be somebody who thinks, oh, that's all tosh. I remember when I was studying English at school, I did it for A-level. I, I often wonder if I should have done it as a degree, but uh, um, I didn't. So uh, I did Welsh and Irish instead, but um, which included study of literature. So, you know, I got, I got some of that. But um, anyway... Yeah, I remember saying to the, I was, and they were saying, well, what does the, what does the, the, I think that it was put to me that the, the story could say things that the author didn't mean, and I, I was like, oh, that's, I was very um, bumptious, I suppose, as a seventeen-year-old. Oh, that's rubbish. That's rubbish. I probably said it like that as well, and, um, and now I think, well, I know that's absolutely true, you know, uh, and that's true for everything. I don't, th- I think, say Beethoven or. Um, uh, Nick Cave, I was listening to Nick Cave before. Well, Nick Cave's probably too thoughtful. Let's say uh, the Sex Pistols. Um, who, well, you know, Johnny Rotten, maybe a bit thoughtful. But, uh, you know, you, I think people, what people get out of that isn't necessarily what the creator intended. I think people bring other things. There is a chemical reaction. That's another Jungian illusion to between the... Um, the consumer of the art and the creator of the art, um, and the product isn't necessary is, is not the same as both of them. So uh, they both put into they both put into it. So what comes out is not just the writer; it's the reader, the listener as well. Anyway, um, there we are. So from oh, I would tell you what I've just been on Twitter and I saw somebody uh, I'd done the PG Woodhouse story and somebody. Very kindly retweeted it. I thought very kindly, and said, "Oh, you know, this is really good." Um, and then he says, "The story is only forty minutes long. The rest is just a patter from the podcaster. It's me, and it's skippable." I thought, "How dare you?" But then I thought, "That's how I used to be about people falling asleep in the stories." And I'm actually really cool about it now. I actually think, "Well, if I help you fall asleep, and sleep is what you need, that's actually quite nice." So I'm, I'm, I've change my position on that and I suppose it doesn't really matter to me whether he skips it or whether he thinks my yattering is skippable because if you were to honestly ask me do I think all the stuff I've just been going on about apart from possibly the facts about EF Benson are worth the paper they're written on or are worth the um, bits on the hard drive that they are stored in well yeah probably not it's just kind of riffing on air isn't it and uh, so anyway ah. so anyway the rest of the time i've just I've got puppy brain we got our puppies um, two and a bit weeks ago and i um you probably know that jasper had a growth on his toe and um we're a bit worried about that to be fair and he's had his toe amputated and he's doing all right but of course there's a worry that it may have spread uh, before because he's so young that uh, he's going to be growing fast so at, at this point in time i don't know um, what the what they're going to do some histology on the bone to see if it's infiltrated the bone, and um, if it hasn't, 
then we're we're probably um, free. Um, and if it has, that is bad. Um, but you know, he's a happy little boy, and um, they they're learning to sit and yeah, we're struggling to toilet train them. We mostly do it, but sometimes they just nip in and have a pee on the bathroom floor, um, and they they're boisterous and. We got them because we were like the runts of the litter, really. Uh, so Ruby, who's the little grey one, she was was known as Sleepy Grey. She never got a milk. There were eight puppies with ten two died. So there were eight puppies, and there was a massive free-for-all. And she was the little one. She used to just sit and sleep, so we thought, uh, oh, she's going to be very quiet. And she is a total tiny terror. She's a firebrand. Um, and she's really come out of herself, but she's tiny still. And then he was big, but because he had this um, thing on his paw, he he was um, at the back as well. And so they were the two rumps, really. And they kind of had a relationship whereby he he would get tired and he would r- retreat. And then she would go and give him a lick. Uh, and that was very sweet. She tries to murder him now, though, and he fights back. So that's just that. So, yeah, that's all I think about now is puppies. I've got, I've got nothing else to say. I was reading some, um, I was reading some Slavoj Žižek's uh, his book on how to uh, read Lacan. I find Jacques Lacan really hard, but I think everybody does. And But the way um, Zizek explains it is actually really illuminating. So in the morning, I tend to kind of give myself some reading time. I read that. I read, um, I read The Spectator, which is a famously right-wing paper, but it's really written, really well written. And I like the arts and books section. And um, I, I agree with some of the stuff they... And I heartily disagree with other things. But... Um, my my uh, uncle, my uncle, my granddad was a bit like that. He was a strong labour man all his life, and he um, he uh, used to read the Daily Express, which is a notoriously right wing paper. And I, I said, I remember saying to him, "Why do you why do you read this?" So he could argue with it. He liked arguing with it, but I think also he had good um, sports. He was massively interested in sports, rugby and cricket particularly, and horse racing. He, he was one of these guys who. Um, he only put tiny bits of money on them, but he would work out the form and and the best bet, and uh, and then he would go with these couple of shillings and put them on the horses. And I don't remember him ever winning. Uh, in fact, the time we won, he once asked me to pick a horse for the Grand National, which had just been big steeplechase, and he uh, it was Red Rum. So I don't know, I was, I was quite small then, and. Um, I liked the name and I picked it and he won. So ever since, ever after that, he got me to pick the horse for the Grand National for him and um, it never won again. Uh, and I've never, I've never been able to pick a winner since. I remember going to the races. I enjoy going to the races, uh, you know, and I, I realised somebody's now offended about all oh, those poor horses. But um, I, had, I had a couple of good days at the races. I never won anything though. Um yeah, it's it's a funny old world, isn't it? So I hope you're all well, and uh, I will go now, finish this, and go. Oh, I went to a philosophy course this morning. There's a guy called Darren Harper runs it, and we were doing. Uh, uh, we've been doing. We did some Chinese philosophy, and we've done did, did the Upanishads last month, and we're doing the Bhagavad Gita um, this month, and Krishna and Arjuna, and that was pretty cool. And I think we're doing Jainism next month. So we're working, and he's done Stoicism, I missed that. Um, I like the Eastern philosophy, but uh, but uh, there we are. So that's all I've done, really. Um, okay.
I hope you're all well. And recorded stories. Uh, oh, I forgot. I'm just kind of on the cusp of publishing my new volume of ghost stories called Further Ghost Stories. I realise it's a really weird thing, you know. I was totally gobsmacked because over Christmas I worked out between the podcast and YouTube, there were 250,000 listens to these to, to these episodes. And you think that's a quarter of a million, not necessarily separate people, but it's a heck of a lot of people. And that's what people want, really. They want me to read them stories. So I, I mustn't kind of think that the audience is the same for my written stories Um be good if it would was wouldn't it but uh but it isn't and that's that's another thing so and i always think about magical thinking you know if the world was as we wished it were but it isn't and that's the truth and that's a hard truth and that's the truth of course as you grow into being an adult you realize that the world is not what you want it to be uh, and just by wishing something so by wishing something was so doesn't make it so Anyway, and with that thought, bye-bye. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried to get into the locked drawer. I invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patreons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well, which is more difficult on podcasts and on YouTube. But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you, which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it, so you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barcud, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.